Welcome to Sundays at Grace. I'm Pastor Bill. I'm so glad you've joined us again. Sundays at Grace is the preaching ministry of Robinson Grace Church in Grand Haven, Michigan. And uh, I'm going to conclude today this four-part series in Jonah. We've been looking at the life of Jonah. We're going to talk today about joy. We're going to actually see five threats to our joy. Uh, Jonah comes to the end of the story and as God shows great mercy and grace to the people of Nineveh, well, Jonah's not so happy about that. And so we will conclude our series today thinking about joy. Again, if you go to the church website, uh, there should be notes there to go along with uh, the message. Uh, at the same time, you can, of course, support the ministry of Robinson Grace Church there as well by clicking the link and uh, contributing to the church if you want to help continually put these podcasts out. But I'm so glad you've joined us today, and I pray that uh, you're having a, a great week, and we're in the midst of the coronavirus, and I pray that you can find some joy, even in the midst of the coronavirus. We'll see today this big idea that genuine joy is not circumstantial, as the fruit of the Spirit, it is evidential. And you can even have joy at this time of life. So let's get right to the message. Don't let anybody, or anything, or anyone threaten your joy. This morning, last week, we talked about fear. That's a kind of a timely topic. Today, we're going to talk about joy. And I think that is also a very relatable and timely topic right now that we would all have joy within the circumstances that we're going through uh, with this coronavirus. But I want to start with this article I found uh, by Richard Culp. He shares the story of Richard in Geneva. It's a story called Losing the Farm But Not the Faith. So now Richard, he served as the foreman of a large ranching operation that he owned, um, about, 200, about a 200-acre almond farmed. And so the problem was years of bad weather and skimpy harvest forced him to take on additional work to provide for his family. Uh, but that didn't even help because they had mounting debt because they had to take out loans to keep the farm going, to keep it uh, watered and keep it sprayed and, and uh, to pay the wages of those who worked on the farm. So they really struggled and it seemed like there were many sleepless nights wrestling with how they would get out of the situation. Now, the truth is, uh, Richard had already lost a farm previously, so this was not uncharted territory for him, but still, it was painful. Finally, the, d the day came when his wife Geneva comes in and gives him the bad news. She, this is what she said, Oh, Richard, I've just been to the farm credit company. They've taken it all. We're being forced to sell. They have a buyer, there's no price negotiation, all they want is our signatures. And so Richard said that as his wife sobbed, he wrapped his arms around her and held her close, and he wept as well. He was 50 years old. Two of his eight kids still lived at home, and he just didn't know what the future would hold for them and how they would get beyond this situation. To make matters worse, they had $100,000 in debt that they owned, that they, had, they were responsible for going forward, and even worse, the current crop on the land, they couldn't even harvest that. They didn't have the rights to that. They had nothing to start over. And so Richard and Geneva were in a, were in a really tough spot. Richard said, though, that in spite of the overwhelming loss and grief, he knew that God was in control of their situation. He only had to look to the Bible to see that God had something better for them despite all they had been through. 
Still, there were times when they didn't have enough money for groceries and living expenses, and it was their family, it was their friends, it was their church that would come through and provide for them. Uh, it was a difficult time for Richard and Geneva and their two kids. A year and a half later, though, God gave Richard and his wife their new direction. Geneva and he were offered a management position at an exclusive 2,600-acre waterfowl hunting club in Northern California. The club catered to wealthy clients. As they served at the club in numerous ways, they realized again and again that money and possessions cannot bring happiness. As Richard said, we had lost everything, yet we had joy in our lives. You know, You've maybe heard the comparison be, be, before of joy and happiness, how, how happiness is kind of rooted in our circumstances and joy is something more internal. Joy is more of a state of being. And that's a, a very popular comparison and a very good comparison. It's a very true comparison. The truth is we may not be happy with our circumstances, but we can still have joy in our spirit and that's because genuine joy supersedes our circumstances and is evident of something deeper within us and this is especially true this is so so very true for those of us who are christians who know christ who have a personal relationship with christ for those who are in christ there is an incredible joy that can swell up from deep within now take for instance uh, an example of this would be the the olympic athlete who just found out after all their training all their work that this year's olympics have been postponed and uh, they may not be very happy with that right now in the moment but in christ they can have joy they can have joy that supersedes that momentary loss the same applies think about that high school senior this is like the best year of 12 years it's the year of school you wait for and and now it's like well no senior skip day for this grad right yeah they're losing out on the, the greatest year of school they may not be very happy in the moment but in christ they can have joy that's the reality they may be out of school but in Christ, they can have joy. And, and for each one of us, this is true. For those of us feeling locked up in our homes, isolated from society, missing our normal routines, even dealing with some possible financial anxiety, we may not be happy in the moment. But again, in Christ, we can experience joy. In Christ, in all circumstances, count it all joy. In Christ... In all circumstances, count it all joy. Look at a verse with me that speaks to this very truth. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the steadfastness, uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're told to find joy in every single circumstance. Everything. And you know what? For those of us in Christ, this is actually a reality. Why? Well, number one, because we can find joy in every circumstance because God is at work in every circumstance. We see it throughout the Bible that God is working in and on His people all the time through everything, through every, every adversity they go through, every challenge they face. God is always working in and on their life. God can bring beauty out of our ashes and help us find joy even in our sorrow. And the second reason we can find joy in every circumstance is because genuine joy is actually the fruit of the Holy Spirit evidenced 
in our life. That's the reality. It shapes up like this. Happiness can tend to be circumstantial based while joy is evidential based. Genuine joy is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Here it is in the Bible in Galatians chapter 5. Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, so you see, genuine joy then is God being seen in my life. Even in the face of adversity and disappointment, we can demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are in week four of our sermon series, Man Overboard, uh, the story of the runaway prophet Jonah, that jumping ship into the arms of a loving Savior. And as, as Jonah jumped into those waters, as Jonah was uh, thrown overboard of that boat uh, into the angry sea, he was swept up in God's loving arms in the belly of that whale. And we have seen in this series that you can never out-sin or outrun God's love. The wicked Ninevites could not out-sin God's love and uh, the runaway prophet Jonah himself could not outrun God's love, even though he tried to. Now, last week we saw Jonah uh, do what God wanted him to do all along. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches the word to Nineveh. And we see that Nineveh, they believe, they humble themselves, they, they repent. And as they repent, God relents. And so it's a great story, right? And it's like, okay, the, the book of Jonah is complete. Jonah preached, they repented, God relented. Oh, wait, not so fast, though. There's a fourth chapter. There's a fourth chapter to the book of Jonah. And it's, as I said in chapter one, that the story of Jonah is just as much about God's love for Jonah as it is for Nineveh. In fact, God called Jonah to this very task, I believe, because he wanted to work some things out in Jonah's life. And we're going to see in chapter 4 that God is going to confront Jonah's increasingly bad attitude. And he's going to help Jonah understand that he, yes, indeed, can find joy. So let's read chapter 4 and then apprise ourselves of Jonah's bad attitude and personally consider then five ways and five common threats that we experience in regards to our own joy. So let me read Jonah chapter 4 here. 11 verses, but it displeased Jonah, verse 1, it, it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and that's that same word we looked at last week, gadow, greatly, the greatness of God's love we talked about last week, but here we see the greatness of Jonah's anger. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and uh, made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly, exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you, well, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, let me just tell you today's big idea here. We'll see this throughout the text. Genuine joy is not circumstantial. As the fruit of the Spirit, it is evidential. I'll say that again. Genuine joy is not circumstantial as, a, as the fruit of the Spirit. It is evidential. So let's look here at five common threats to our joy, and I think we can relate to these. They're all related and all interconnected, kind of. But number one, the anger of our flesh will hinder the joy of the Spirit. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah, to put it simply, is angry. Now, there's a word about our anger here is there's two types of anger. There is that unrighteous anger of the flesh, and then there's that very righteous anger of the Spirit. There are things we should be angry about, and then there are things yeah, we shouldn't be angry about. And that's the reality in this passage here. There is this unrighteous anger in the flesh of Jonah that he is dealing with. Now understand that, uh, that anger is a secondary emotion usually driven by fear or hurt or stress. In other words, if I am angry, there is usually something underneath that fear, a secondary emotion that is driving, or, or, or a primary emotion that is driving the secondary emotion of my anger. Anger is like a warning light that says, hey, you know what? Look out. There's something wrong in your life. Something is off in your life. Maybe I have been hurt by someone, or I'm worried or stressed about something these emotions and circumstances scare me. They make me angry. And this is true for Jonah. Jonah needs to look in the mirror and say, hey, you know what? Something's off in my life. I'm angry and I shouldn't be angry. Look what I'm angry about. Something is off spiritually. Something is stealing my joy. The question is, how do we combat this issue? How do we deal with our anger so that it does not steal our joy? That's the question we need to kind of consider. And part of the equation here, the reality is, is that this anger, it's, it's a control issue. It's always a control issue. When I'm hurt or afraid or stressed out, it's because there is something that is not in my control. It could be a, an emotional hurt. And I, 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 I can't control that, that emotion and so it scares me could be a physical illness and I can't control this illness and it scares me. It could be a financial situation and, and I can't control that financial situation and it scares me. The coronavirus, which none of us can control, maybe that scares us. The reality is that fear, that hurt, that stress can lead to anger and can steal our joy. So the way we manage, the way we manage our anger then is to realize that I don't have to be in control, but I have to relinquish control to the Holy Spirit. 
I have to relinquish control to the Holy Spirit. I have to give him my pain and my hurt and my stress and my fear. And this is Jonah's core issue. What is Jonah? Think, think about Jonah, what Jonah is doing back in chapter 1. What did, what did it tell us? Jonah was running, what? He was running away, but he was running also running from God's presence. He was running from God's presence, running from the Holy Spirit, trying to get away Instead of running to God and surrendering to God, surrendering his fear and his hurt and his anger and all of his emotions to God, he was running from the presence of the Lord. And so, Jonah lost his joy. Nehemiah 8.10 in the Old Testament says this, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God was telling Israel at one point, don't, don't be grieved, but know the strength that comes from being a joyful people. And we need to know that, that joy will be a strength in our life. The truth is, a disposition of joy will be a strength within us, an inner strength within us. It'll make us stronger. It really will. The best example of this is Jesus himself. Jesus went to the cross, and I'll think Jesus goes to the cross, and he doesn't go to the cross with an unrighteous anger. He goes to the cross with a very righteous anger. He's, he's angry at sin. He's angry at death. He's angry at hell. He's angry at Satan. He has a righteous indignation for those things, but he doesn't have an unrighteous anger. He's not angry at you. He's not angry at me. He's not even angry at those that are driving the nails in his hands. It says, it says that when he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So God was not angry. He didn't go to the cross in anger. He went to the cross in love. He really did. But here's the reality. Listen to what it says. As you and I go out and run our own race every day, we're told in Hebrews 12 too that we're supposed to be doing this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So see, Jesus didn't go to the cross with this unrighteous anger. He went to the cross in love. And you know what? He had joy. Even going to the cross, he had joy. There was joy that went before him. Joy on the other side of the cross. Joy that preceded him through this circumstance. While happiness, happiness may not have described his circumstances, joy described his state. In fact, it was joy in front of him that helped him endure the cross. Again, today's big idea. Genuine joy is not circumstantial, but as a fruit of the Spirit, it is evidential. And as Jesus hung on that cross, you could see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, the joy of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, driving him and carrying him through the cross. Here's a second threat to our joy this morning. It's found in verse 2. Jonah says this, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's the, the simple truth. Unforgiveness that leads to bitterness will steal my joy. Unforgiveness that leads to bitterness will, 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 will hinder my joy. It will threaten my joy. That's the truth. Now think of Jonah's disposition again. Jonah is not just angry Probing even deeper, we see that he is consumed with unforgiveness. He has a bad case of bitterness. 
The bottom line is an unforgiving spirit will threaten our joy. Now, Jonah's a great picture of a lesson we have all probably heard and learned before, and I'll get to this lesson momentarily, but consider this simple truth. We talked about it last week, that we are called to forgive just as Christ forgave us. We are, Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So I made the point last week that, it, that the reality is that whenever I forgive someone, I'm actually sharing the gospel with them. We often think sharing the gospel is, is you know, explaining the death, burial, and resurrection to someone and, and, and showing them how they can have a, a, be a new creation in Christ. And that's, tr- and that's true, and we need to do that, certainly. But the truth is that just forgiving someone, I am sharing the good news of the gospel. I'm sharing the forgiveness that Christ has poured into my life, the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness, and I just pass that on to someone else. Look back again at verse 2. Circle that word abounding in verse 2. I, I knew, says Jonah, that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Understand that God not only abounds in mercy and love and forgiveness, but he has actually poured that into your life and into my life as Christians. He has given us an unlimited supply of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness that we can then in turn pass on to others. The greater point here is what we see in Jesus, how the forgiveness of the gospel when passed on leads to joy. Jesus experienced joy as he went to the cross. He looked and there was joy on the awaiting for him and driving him and carrying him through the cross. The, the joy was a strength in his life. Now here's the lesson that Jonah teaches us that you've probably heard before, but I'll repeat it again this morning. Forgiveness is a favor to self that leads to joy. That when you forgive someone, even if they don't accept your forgiveness... It, it benefits you personally. Forgiveness is a favor to self because it leads to joy. As you set yourself free from that hurt and pain, as you choose to not hold that wrong against another person, as you set them free, you're doing yourself a huge favor because you're allowing joy to grow in your own life. So don't be like Jonah. Be like Jesus. And understand there is a strength that comes when we are joyful, when we live in, in joy, and there's a, there's a strength when we forgive because that leads to joy. Now, one more thing here about Jonah's objection there. Look at that verse 2 again. He, he says this, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A little critical thinking here. So Jonah says that God is abounding in steadfast love and he's merciful and he's gracious. Question, how does Jonah know that? How does Jonah know that God is so merciful and so gracious and so abounding in love? How how does Jonah know that? I think you know how Jonah knows that. He knows that because God has been that way with him. God has been gracious to him and merciful to him and, 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 and poured abundant love and forgiveness into his life. So here's the question then. If Jonah has experienced this from God, if Jonah knows this about God, then what does this tell us about Jonah's unforgiving attitude towards the Ninevites? What does that reveal about himself? 
Well, it reveals this, that Jonah thinks, yeah, God forgave me and I needed some forgiveness and I needed some mercy and grace. Yeah, I needed that. But I'm not as bad as the Ninevites. I mean, they're really bad. They're really sinners. They're so far beyond. They, they're, they're beyond God's mercy and grace. They deserve God's judgment. And you see how the, the pride element kind of seeps into Jonah's life here. As Jonah thinks he's better than Nineveh. That's a sad reality. So that's our second, our second, the second threat to our joy is simply the, 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 the unforgiveness that leads to bitterness will, will, will threaten our joy. Look at verse 5. Here's a third threat. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Well, here's the reality. Wishing for the demise of your enemies will threaten your joy. Wishing for the demise of your enemies will threaten your joy. It simply will. Can you picture Jonah here? I kind of get this image of like when we would take the kids and we would go out. It's, it's July 4th and we all go out, you know, and we would find a place outside of the park and we'd sit down on the grass and we would watch, get ready to watch the fireworks go off and we're kind of outside of the park looking up in the sky. And I kind of look at Jonah here. He went out and built this little booth, this little shack, and, and he's sitting outside the city and he's just waiting for the show. Evidently, I think what Jonah's uh, thought process is here is that the minute he leaves Nineveh, they're so bad, the minute he leaves Nineveh, that <laughs> they're just going to go right back to their wickedness and God's going to come along and he's going to firebomb them. And so Jonah's just there waiting for God to firebomb the Israelites. It does say a lot, does it not, that Jonah was more hopeful for their demise than he was that their repentance was genuine and that their salvation was sure. Now the thing is, we probably think, well, I can't really relate to that, right? We can't relate to wishing the demise of our enemies, can we? Right? Well, how about this scenario? Let's say you're driving down the road sometime. It's uh, maybe winter. You're driving a little slow in the snow and there's a truck behind you and this truck gets frustrated with you. And the driver's kind of becoming a jerk and he wants to get around you and he wants you to speed up and he's mad at you. And, and so eventually, eventually after tailgating you for a long time, eventually this driver makes his way around you, passes you, gives you a hand gesture on the way by, nearly cuts you off and runs you off the road and he heads on down the road and you're like, man, what a jerk. And, he, and, and as you focus on him, he starts to steal your joy and upset you. And so he drives on down the road. And about two miles down the road, you see these flashing lights, right? And all of a sudden, you notice that a cop has just pulled over that same jerk of a driver. And you drive by and you look at him and you say, oh, I feel so bad for that guy. I feel so bad that he got pulled over. <laughs> yeah, sure you do. You're like, boom, he got his. And we're, we're, like, we're like happy, yeah, I got my joy back, right? Because he got his. He was a jerk and he got what he deserved. And that's the, really the instance of what's going on with Jonah here. Jonah's outside the city. And, and notice he's, he's sitting here waiting and hoping and wishing and praying. He's even praying for the demise of his enemies. And the reality is this attitude of Jonah is 180 degrees out of sync with God when we wish the demise of our enemies. That's 180, deg 180 degrees out of sync with what God wants for us. Just like Jonah ran in the complete opposite direction of, of, of uh, Nineveh and went to Tarshish, this is the complete opposite direction, wishing the demise of our enemies. 
What's the right approach? Well, we find it in Romans chapter 12. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see how wishing the demise of your enemies is 180 degrees out of sync with God as we're called to bless them that's the truth we're called to bless them not wish them ill will now you might say bless them how do I bless how do I bless my enemies really seriously well I can think of a couple ways right just in that passage there for one I can bless them when I pray for them if I drive by that erratic angry driver I can stop and pray and say Lord something's off with that guy today Will you help him? Whatever that, whatever's driving that anger in him, will you minister to him today? Make yourself known to him today. We can pray. And then another way is that I can bless them when I serve them. I can bless them when I serve them. The reality is this, this passage here at the end in Romans 12 that Paul, he's quoting the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. It's a fascinating proverb and there is differing commentary as to what it means to heap coals of fire on the head of your enemy. But the explanation that has always resonated the most with me comes from uh, Kenneth West. He's a New Testament Greek scholar from back in the 1960s at Moody Bible Institute. Listen to what he says about this verse. Uh, In Bible times, an Oriental needed to keep his 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 hearth fire going all the time in order to ensure fire for cooking and warmth. If it went out, he had to go to a neighbor for some live coals of fire. These he would carry on his head in a container oriental fashion back to his home the person who would give him some live coals would be meeting his desperate need and showing him an outstanding kindness if he would heap the container with coals the man would be sure of getting some home still burning the one injured would be returning kindness for injury and i like this because this commentary here this is in keeping with the overall tone of the passage and the idea of blessing your enemy The idea is not that the burning coals represent the individual's seared conscience as much as they represent the extent to which our kindness can go. And yes, that kindness can quite possibly change the other person's attitude. It is not that my good is a backhanded form of revenge. It is the idea that my good can overcome their evil and quite possibly change their attitude. There's a fascinating uh, story. Uh, there's this woman, a Mennonite lady who has a blog called Pearls in a Nutshell. And, and Julie tells this fascinating story. She tells the story of a Mennonite village in Ukraine where her parents and some of her distant relatives grew up. And she said they were often at the mercy of marooding and, uh, and, and the, the, these marooding gangs and bandits that would come in and attack 
They raided and they killed at will. They had, no one had the authority to stop them. She told the story of, of, of a, a man and his couple one night. They were in their home. They're, they're in their bed sleeping. And they hear some noise up on their roof. And so the man gets up out of bed and slips out. And sure enough, to his horror, there are some of these bandits. And they're tearing apart his house. They're just ripping it apart piece by piece. So the man slips back inside, wakes up his wife, tells his wife to go to the kitchen and prepare a meal. And she prepares a meal. And then when the meal's done, he goes out and he calls those men on the roof and says, hey, you guys are working really hard. Uh, I'm guessing you're pretty hungry. Why don't you come in and have a meal? I made a meal. Come down and eat. So the men are, you can, you can imagine, quite surprised. <laughs> and they come down and they come in the house and they sit around the table. And this man uh, just prays a prayer over the food, blesses the food, and then blesses all the men around his table. And then takes and fills their plates and gives them this food to eat. And, and the men sit there and they lift their forks and they begin to eat the meal. And then after a couple of minutes, they put their forks down, they walk back out, back on the roof, and you can hear the, the work uh, take up again. But this time, there was a change. This time, they put the house back together and they quietly left. And what, a great, what, a, what a great picture of the story of, of heaping coals of kindness on your enemy. Wishing for the demise of my enemies will steal my joy, while blessing them will do the exact opposite. If you want more joy in your life, if you want to display more of the joy of the Spirit, learn to bless your enemies. Here is a fourth threat to our joy. Look at, look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And this is the second time that Jonah says this. It's better for me to die than to live. Well, here is the fourth threat to our joy. A victim mentality will steal our joy. I mean, is it not totally ridiculous for Jonah to have such a bad attitude? It would be better for me to die. If you're, if you're going to forgive my enemies, Lord, just take my life already, please. The thing is, we have to be careful that we don't have a victim mentality and don't even realize it. That we don't even realize that, that, that that's the, what's going on in our heart and in our life. The saddest thing for us today when it comes to this victim mentality is that we don't have to be victims because we are victors in Christ. Because of the cross and resurrection, we are victors, not victims. We don't have to be victims of sin or temptation or our circumstances or our problems or our wrongs or our enemies or our past or our hurts or even our success. You don't have to be a victim of your success. We don't have to be victims. We are victors today in Christ because of the cross and resurrection. But I can give you in the text here three uh, examples of what it looks like when we develop this victim mentality for one, A would be this, beware that you, we don't pray negative woe is me prayers. It says here, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. It's almost like he's praying against his enemy, the Ninevites here, instead of blessing them. He's, he's asking God almost to punish them. Not show them mercy. Now let me clarify something here. There is something to be said for prayers of lament. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist pray a lot of prayers of lament. In fact, much like we saw in Jonah chapter 2. And Jonah's in the belly of that whale. And Jonah 
is quoting the Psalms and praying a prayer of lament. And there's nothing wrong with praying prayers of lament. We see David in the Psalms being gut-wrenchingly honest with God as he expresses how he feels. And as we've noted many times, that God is more than able to handle it when we are honest with Him and vent to Him. But there is something different here in chapter 2 when he's in the belly of the whale and he's praying this prayers of lament to chapter 4 when he is having a woe is me sort of victim mentality. There is a difference in these two prayers. The biggest difference is seen in how these prayers always end. Because when you look in chapter 2 and as you look throughout the Psalms, these Psalms of lament always climax by praising God, by exalting God. But here, Jonah's certainly not in that mentality here. This is Jonah assuming a position of woe is me, victim mentality. It's not about praising God. It's about, hey, you know what? You choose, me or them. You choose. If you're going to save them, you might as well just kill me right now. What an attitude that Jonah has. The next evidence of this victim mentality is found in verses 5 and 6. Beware of getting comfortable in our bad attitude. Jonah has a bad attitude and he gets comfortable there. He puts up this booth and he sits down and he's got this rotten attitude and he's just comfortable. Have you ever met anybody that seems to be most comfortable when they're complaining? When they're unhappy? Who thrive on bad times and, 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 and being upset? Well... Don't ever let yourself get comfortable with your complaining. And then finally, look at verse 10, and this is a serious sign of a victim mentality. We see it in verse 10. But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. We need to be aware of justifying our bad attitude. I mean, isn't verse 10 so shocking? God just confronts Jonah with the most simple of questions. It's not hard to answer. Do you really have a right to be angry? And Jonah's like, I certainly do have a right to be angry. I'm mad. You know how rotten those people are. You know what they've done to you and your people. You know how they treated Israel. You know how terrible they are. And again, it's like, who do you want? You want them or you want me? And God's like, no, no, I want you both. I love you both. The bottom line is a victim mentality will steal our joy. I mean, isn't it obvious? It is hard to have joy when we are a victim. But thankfully in Christ, we aren't victims. We are victors. So we can always have joy. Finally, there is one last threat to our joy as we see it in the text. And I'm out of really time today to, to develop this, so I'm just going to give it to you. You can ponder this yourself if you want later, but it's this, number five. When we have the wrong values, we will lose our joy. You know, Jonah valuing this worthless plant that grows up and then withers in the same day, valuing that plant more than he values the people, the Ninevites, that's a value that is certainly off base. And sometimes we value things more than people. Sometimes we value ourselves more than others. Our values can be off. And when we have the wrong values, we will lose our joy. But I want to close with this this morning. I want to go deeper for just a minute then. And I want us to just think about, we have these five very common threats to our joy that we've looked at this morning. We've walked through them this morning, right? The, the issue of anger, the, the issue of unforgiveness, the issue of wishing for their demise or having this victim mentality or having the wrong values. There's all of these threats 
to our joy. But, but I want to consider from the other standpoint this, this, this reality of how can we you know, kind of feed joy in our life. And I've got three angles here. First, there's this observation. If you look at all these threats we've talked about this morning, they're all interlinked. They are, they're all interconnected. They're all kind of tied together. Well, the reality is the same is true when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. Remember? The fruit of the Spirit. Genuine joy. Genuine joy is not circumstantial as a fruit of the Spirit. It is evidential. And so the reality is when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, let me just read again Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, some theologians think there is one fruit here, love, and then everything is just kind of like a byproduct of this one fruit, love. Others think there are nine distinct fruit rep- fruits represented here. It really doesn't matter how you view it, I don't think. Just to understand they're all interconnected. It's like one big fruit bowl here, and they're all interconnected. It is interesting that God starts with love, and it seems like everything flows out of love. And it's kind of like they follow a pattern in this sense that love leads to joy, which leads to peace, which leads to patience, which, which leads to kindness, which leads to goodness, and so on. I mean, it's, it's kind of like this, right? That if I am patient, then I will be kind, and if I am kind, I will be good. And so God starts with love, and it's like the fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is going to lead to joy. If I have a love for Christ... And if I have the love of Christ and I feed that love, it should, it should lead to joy. It should lead to joy. Genuine joy is a fruit that grows in tandem with all of these other fruits. So that's the observation. That's the observation. Now here's the illustration. To better understand what is at work in our life, turn with me to John 15 a moment. Now this is a passage that could certainly use more context and explanation than I can give it I just want to give you the simple explanation here of of something this is kind of a picture of how uh, you know our relationship with Christ works our oneness with Christ works John 15 5 Jesus said I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing And I also want you to think about this analogy here, in this analogy, that Jesus is the vine, and we are the branch. And then by extension, the Holy Spirit is the fruit. Jesus is the vine, we are the branch, the Holy Spirit is the fruit. Now this is true for anyone who is in Christ. Remember remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is past, behold, the new has come. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. If we are in Christ, Christ is in us. He is the vine, we are the branches. But the Holy Spirit, by extension, is the fruit. That's the the truth here. Now the operative uh, word here again is in Christ. It's, It's when we are in Christ. We see this then in which my happiness is circumstantial and changes day by day while my joy is evidential, as it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit within me. The Holy Spirit is the fruit, which means that joy is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Jesus is the vine, we are the branch, the Holy Spirit is the fruit. That brings us 
to the application. The observation, all these fruits are intertwined. The um, illustration, Jesus is the vine, we're, we're the branch, the Holy Spirit is the fruit. Here's the application. I have a simple question for us this morning at this point. Um, what do you do with fruit? What do you do with fruit, right? Well, you, you, you pick fruit, right? Sometimes you pick it off the branch. But what do you do with fruit? Well, of course, we eat fruit. We eat fruit. Glance back at Romans 12 a minute. I want you to see something in Romans 12. We were here a minute ago. Earlier we saw how we, if we want joy in our life, we are called to bless our enemies, right? So we can bless our enemies, we said in two ways. We can pray for them and we can serve them. But look at this passage again for an obvious third way that we can bless our enemies. I'm going to take this from Romans chapter 12, verse 20. To the contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. We can bless our enemies when we feed them. Right? Now, now here's the question. What can I feed them? How about if I feed them some of the fruit of the Spirit? How about feeding them love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And the thing is, and watch this, if I, for instance, feed someone joy, you know what happens? Uh, more joy immediately just is produced in my life. Remember that we are filled from within, right? That's the role of the Holy Spirit today, that we, we are not filled externally. We're filled from within. We have this deep reservoir of the abounding love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. We have all the fruits of the Spirit. They're right in here. And as I share them with somebody, they're just reproduced in my life and people can just see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. What a beautiful thing. And, and this is true. The reality is this interconnectedness of all these fruits that if I give somebody patience or if I feed somebody kindness or if I feed somebody goodness or self-control, if I, if I share that fruit with somebody else immediately, that increases my joy. That increases my joy. Remember again what Jonah said about God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We have this incredible, incredible reservoir of the Holy Spirit fruit within us just waiting to be shared with others, our enemies and even our friends. And even the people, maybe right now we're locked up in home with people and, and we're getting on each other's nerves and just give them a great dose of peace and patience and kindness and goodness. You see, my joy, here's the reality about joy. My joy is not what is happening outside of me. It is the evidence of what Christ has done, his work inside of me. Genuine joy is not circumstantial. As the fruit of the Spirit it is evidential. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so we can have joy in any circumstance. We can have joy in any relationship. We can have joy no matter what is going on around us, even to us. We can have joy. You know, let me go back to this Richard L. Culp and his story. He was talking about losing the farm but not the faith. Remember Richard in Geneva? We started with them. Let me just give you Richard's final comments here, the close of his story. Richard says that after we had been at the club for about a year, I received a call from the head of the credit company that had taken our farm. Can you imagine if, if the head, the guy who had taken your farm called you up on the phone? 
He said he wanted to talk with us and insisted on making the hours drive out to the hunting club. Can you imagine? You just, I don't you want to talk to this guy. He took our farm from us. Anyway, as we sat together, Richard said, he said, as we sat together, the banker said, I want to ask you something personal. A friend of mine recently lost everything he owned. His wife just committed suicide. We at the office have noticed that you two are handling this crisis differently, more differently than most people do. Can you tell me what your secret is? I was happy to explain. I said, we believe in the God of the Bible. He is sovereign over our lives and he is in control. Even, through the pain, even though the pain is real, we are confident of this. God has proven sufficient and, even, and able to even take care of us. Geneva added, God's word promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It was true, throughout the entire ordeal, we never felt alone for a single moment. Later, as the head of the credit company rose to leave, he thanked us. You've given me a lot to think about, he said quietly. You see, genuine joy is not circumstantial. As the fruit of the Spirit, it is evidential. It is evidence of God at work in my life. It is evidence of God coming alive within me. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for, thank you for your love for Jonah. Can I just start there? We saw that in chapter 1. and this, The book of Jonah, it's, it's much about your love for him. And, and Jonah's got this really bad attitude and he's got all this anger and unforgiveness and the victim mentality and, and he's lost his joy. And you love him and you want him to get his joy back. And so I want to thank you for your love for Jonah, but I want to thank you for your love for me and for each one of, of us that are listening to this message today because you certainly, you love us all the same. Now I pray for that person out there that is not in Christ, that has never believed and received. I pray today that they would believe and they would receive and they would be in Christ and they would be filled with your Holy Spirit so that they could be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, in particular, your joy. And I just pray if anybody hasn't believed and hasn't received today, they would make that decision. Believe that you are God, believe that you died on the cross for their sins and they would receive your forgiveness and they would receive your life and they would trust you to be their savior. But for the rest of us, Lord, I just pray that we will remember the, the abundance of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and yes, the abundance of joy that you have poured into our life, that you have stored up within us. And this week we have the opportunity to, to show that joy to the people around us, to share that joy with the people around us, to let them know that you're our father to let them know that you're our Savior, to let them know that you're our comfort and friend. Guide us as we continually go through this whole coronavirus uh, the next few weeks. Give us patience. Give us joy. Give us the fruit of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.